Have you ever been misunderstood? Maybe uh, from a spouse or a coworker or a dear friend? It can be painful being misunderstood, right? Uh, perhaps the misunderstanding came from hearing only the last few words as you rounded the corner. They only caught a glimpse of that conversation. Uh, maybe the misunderstanding came from seeing your actions at a distance and uh, didn't, you didn't see what happened beforehand. You don't have the whole context of the activity that was occurring. Maybe wrong assumptions have led to the wrong conclusions, and so it's led to a painful misunderstanding. In the passage that we're studying together this morning, we see that the Apostle Paul is deeply misunderstood, and nearly at every turn. He is misunderstood by fellow believers in Jesus Christ. He is misunderstood by his fellow Jews. He is even misunderstood by a Roman tribune. Everywhere we turn in our text, Paul is misunderstood. What do you do if and when you are misunderstood? What do you do when you are misunderstood in the midst of carrying the message about Jesus to others? What did Paul do? Well, let's discover and answer these questions as we study God's Word together this morning. If you haven't done so, let me invite you to open your Bibles and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. We'll begin in verse 17. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 930. I would encourage you to have your Bible open and read along with me. Uh, you don't want to be bored, and that will help you uh, keep from being bored, being active right there in the text. As we thought about a couple of weeks ago, you also don't want to be bored and so fall asleep. I do not have the same reviving powers as the Apostle Paul when Eutychus fell out of the window. So, let's dive into God's Word together. What, what is the book of Acts about as a whole? Because that shapes and informs the text that we're looking at together. Well, the book of Acts, it chronicles the ongoing ministry of the risen Lord Jesus Christ as He works through His disciples by the power of His Holy Spirit. Jesus has told His disciples that they are going to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of of the earth. And we are in the part of the book of Acts where we are, are watching the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Last week, we saw the Apostle Paul state his purpose to go to Jerusalem. He has been to de determined to go to Jerusalem since Acts chapter 19, verse 21, where we read these words. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. This is actually key for how the book of Acts is going to continue to chronicle the conquest of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Paul understands that he must go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And along Paul's path, the Holy Spirit has warned him that imprisonment, chains, and affliction await him. So, along Paul's path, not only has the Holy Spirit been warning Paul about this in his spirit... Believers have been urging Paul not to go. But Paul, he cannot be turned away. He is relentless. He will go and do the Lord's will. He is obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul told us in Acts chapter 21, verse 13, that he was ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. The disciples who were pleading with Paul recognized that this was the will of the Lord. And so they prayed that the Lord's will would be done. And the opening verse of our text today, which is something of a, a transition verse. We looked at it briefly last week. We're going to pick up here again. It's a transition verse. It announces that Paul arrives in Jerusalem. And in our passage today, we see just what the will of the Lord is 
for the Apostle Paul. The will of the Lord for Paul was to suffer misunderstanding, to suffer slander and scorn, to speak of Jesus' saving power, and to nearly suffer a Roman beating. For the sake of Jesus' mission, we're going to see that Paul must be all things to all men, that he must be willing to endure slander and scorn for the sake of the Savior, that he must be convinced of his commission, he must be certain of his citizenship. And these are actually four lessons that we may learn from the Apostle Paul in our pursuit of the mission of Jesus. And there are four points that are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. You can find them, I believe, on an insert provided there in your bulletin. And it's my prayer that as we study through this passage, we would come to see that the path of the Messiah is the path of the Messiah's messengers. The path of the Messiah is very often the path of the Messiah's messengers. Let's turn now to our first part where we learn that for the sake of the peace of the church and the advance of Jesus' mission, we ought to be all things to all men. Follow along as I read Acts chapter 21, beginning there in verse 17, we'll read to verse 26. And as I read, see if you can spot the idea for yourself that when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, he labored to be all things to all men, so that he might establish peace in the church there and a witness in Jerusalem. Acts 21, beginning there in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled from, and from sexual morality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Well, in these verses, we see that Paul, he arrives in Jerusalem and he seeks to alleviate the concerns of the Jewish Christians in town. With verse 17, we see that Paul and his missionary companions were gladly received when they arrived there in Jerusalem. And it doesn't take long, uh, it doesn't take Paul long to reconnect with the church there in Jerusalem, does it? And to recount the grace of God to them. Do you see there in verse 19, Notice who gets credit for Paul's ministry among the Gentiles. It wasn't Paul. It was God. Paul went through the long list of the triumphs of God's grace in his ministry. But he is sure to give all glory to God. It was God who had done these wonderful things. And this reminds us that when we speak of sinners being saved or saints being sanctified through our ministry, we ought always to give glory and honor to God. All glory and honor to God. 
And with verse 20, we see that James and all the elders of the church, they glorified God too. But they were also keen to resolve a problem that had popped up. Sadly, Paul had been misunderstood. You see that some believing Jews had come to think that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, cared nothing for the law. Uh, this couldn't be further from the truth. After all, according to Acts chapter 16, verse 3, Paul had Timothy circumcised for the sake of Jewish outreach. Paul actually loved the law. And still he, like James and the Jerusalem elders, had come to understand that salvation does not come through our keeping of the law. Rather, salvation comes through Jesus, who kept the law for us. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's what the Jerusalem church decided back in Acts chapter 15. The establishment of the new covenant in Jesus' blood meant that some of the requirements of the law, particularly the, the civil and ceremonial elements of the law, were no longer binding upon Jews or Gentiles for that matter. There's great freedom in Christ, as Paul wrote about in the book of Galatians. Some old customs did not have to be maintained. And physical circumcision certainly isn't required for salvation. And still, there's a difference between freedom and forsaking. That's the problem there. There's a difference between teaching freedom from civil and ceremonial aspects of the law and exhorting Jews to forsake the law of Moses. James and Paul both taught that Jews are free to keep some ceremonial aspects of the law and some of its customs. And they are free to stop keeping some of them as well. But the rumor was that Paul was urging Jews to forsake the law of Moses. James, however, as we see, he knew the truth. He knew that Paul was a faithful brother in Christ. You see that in verse 20. And he wanted Paul's good name restored in the minds of the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem. And so James and the elders urged Paul to show his love and respect for the law. And that motive was already present in Paul's heart. For in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, Paul said that the law was holy, was righteous, it was good. Yes, Paul loved the law, just like them. James and the elders urged Paul to join some other men in taking on this Nazarite vow. That's what we learn about in Numbers chapter 6. That's where this comes from. And the goal was for Paul to show that he actually appreciates the law. And Lord willing, the concerns of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem would be alleviated, relieved. Paul could take this action in good conscience because it didn't jeopardize the truth that salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Neither Paul nor James would actually compromise on that truth and that matter of first importance. But where there was freedom, both James and Paul would concede to brothers and sisters with more stringent scruples in order to cultivate peace and harmony. In verse 25, you see there that James even recalls the decision that I mentioned about the Jerusalem Council back in Acts chapter 15, a meeting that Paul was actually at. There the council recognized that Gentiles did not have to become Jewish in order to be Christians, but that they did have to live in accordance with the moral law of God. They couldn't continue to worship as pagans with pagans. All of those activities mentioned there in verse 25 are intimately connected with pagan worship. And so Paul, seeing an opportunity to cultivate peace and harmony, he springs into action. Without delay, he seeks to bring peace to the hearts and minds of his Jewish brothers. He is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as he writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. He wonderfully embodies what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. Here in Jerusalem, Paul became as one under the law, that he might win those under the law. 
Paul was willing to become all things to all people that by all means he might save some. I think there's some useful application here for us in this portion of God's word, especially in Paul's gracious action. First, let me encourage you to do your best to make sure that you don't misunderstand someone's words or actions. Take care to clarify what you're seeing or hearing about someone that it is accurate and fair and in accord with the truth. Get the truth straight from the horse's mouth. What is more, when you are asked to characterize someone, someone maybe their teaching or their actions, try to characterize uh, their actions, their teaching, their words in the most charitable light possible. The reality is, is that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they had been misinformed about Paul. And as a result, they had formed a poor opinion of him. Another thing that we can learn from Paul is that where there is unity in the truth, we can use our freedom in Christ to clear up misunderstandings and form tighter bonds with believers. But this is only possible where the truth is clear and commonly held. This is only possible where the truth is clear and commonly held. Paul and James, they took the same view of salvation. They took the same approach to the law. And because the truth was clear and commonly held between them, they could devise a plan to use their freedom to strengthen fellowship between believers. For the sake of Jesus' mission, Paul is willing to be all things to all men. And he's also willing to suffer scorn and slander for the sake of the Savior. This is our second point. We find it in verses 27 to 36. Follow along there as I read Acts chapter 21, verses 27 to 36. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Well, in these verses, we see Paul accused and arrested. Paul tried to worship peacefully there in the temple, but it was not to be. In verses 27 and 28, you see the accusations, they start flying. Observe that it is the Jews from Asia who are the troublers of Israel. And in all likelihood, these men are from Ephesus. That's a solid hypothesis, not only because they're able to identify Trophimus, the Ephesian, verse 29, but also because the exact same behavior we see here in this crowd, we saw in the Ephesian riot in, in Acts chapter 19. So the, the language of the city being stirred up and the people running together and seizing and dragging was all used actually to describe the Ephesian riot there in verse 19. 
But in order to start a commotion, you have to have a cause. And so they cry out that Paul is a deceitful teacher. They claim, according to the first part of verse 28 you see there, that Paul is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, and the law, and this place. I hope that those words sound familiar. They should. Because they are the same words used to describe Stephen and his teaching in Acts chapter 6, verse 13, a few years before. You'll remember that Stephen was condemned by the Jews. And as we'll be reminded shortly, Paul was there giving his approval. This is all kind of deja, deja vu probably for Paul. Paul is now facing the same charge as Stephen. There's, there's also a sense in which we can say that this charge against Paul and against Stephen was the same charge that Jesus faced in the same place roughly 25 years before. When Jesus was on trial in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 61 and 62, his accusers actually supposed him to be speaking against the temple when they recall his words, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. They misunderstood Jesus. They misunderstood Stephen. And now they misunderstand Paul. Paul's teaching is actually not contrary to the people or to the law or to that place. Rather, his teaching is congruent with God's fulfillment of his promises for his people in sending Jesus the Messiah. Paul taught that Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, had fulfilled the law of Moses. Jesus the Messiah had fulfilled God's purposes in the temple. Jesus the Messiah is the one whom the people are to worship. Now, Paul is a faithful teacher of God's purposes to save his people from their sins. Still, Paul is accused not merely of being uh, speaking against the temple, but also being a defiler of the temple. Given his friendliness with Gentiles, they suppose, or they assume, notice the danger of assumptions again. They suppose, they assume that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus actually tells us that the temple had an inscription, a very clear inscription, that anyone who came into the temple, who was a foreigner, they came in under the pain of death. And that Paul brought a Greek in, a, a Gentile, into the temple, it was a complete fabrication. Paul would not have done it. He did not do that. The Jews in the Ephesian riot missed their chance to pummel Paul, and so here's their opportunity now, or so they think. And as a result, the city descends into chaos. Paul is seized, he's dragged, and we're told in verse 31 that they're about to kill him. Before the Jews are able to execute their plan, we see that the tribune intervenes. He detains Paul. The tribune, in verse 31, he's a commander of about a thousand Roman soldiers. So we can understand why the Jews stopped beating Paul at that moment when he rushes in. And that day, no one wanted to mess with Rome. What is more, the Roman soldiers were really the professional beaters. They were the ones who could inflict the punishment. So perhaps... The Jews believe that the Romans will pick up where they've left off. Paul is bound, you see there. And suddenly we're reminded of Agabus' prophecy earlier in the chapter. Right? That he would be bound. And this is coming true. Paul is, no doubt, as well, remembering the testimony of the Holy Spirit. In every city on this road to Jerusalem. The chains, they've finally been put upon him. And the confusion of the crowd leads the tribune to take Paul inside of the barracks. So he can get kind of a handle on the situation. But what we cannot miss in this scene is especially what we see there in verse 36, the cry or the demand of the throng. They cry away with him. These words, like the ones we heard earlier, should also sound familiar. They were the words the crowd shouted in Luke 23, 13 concerning Jesus. They cried away with him and released to us Barabbas, 
What we need to see in this scene, and in this really section as a whole, is that Paul is walking the same path as the Savior. He is enduring the same scorn and slander as Jesus. The path of the Messiah is very often the path of the Messiah's messengers. And Jesus told us that it would be this way. So in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, Jesus, we read these words from Jesus. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Here's something that we need to come to grips with as Christians. If we are followers of Christ, if we are messengers of his grace, then like the Messiah and Paul, we too may very well be misunderstood and mistreated. When that happens, we need to remember that the Savior suffered slander and scorn for us and for our salvation. We should count it a joy to be identified with Christ and His sufferings. We must also remember that the real aim is not us, but Christ. He is the one that our friends or family members or perhaps our co-workers are finally hostile toward. They ultimately don't want to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. Try not to take it personally, because as Jesus taught us, we'll be persecuted and misunderstood because of Him. If reviled, do not revile in return, but imitate the Savior who suffered slander and scorn for you. This is what Paul and we must do for the sake of Jesus' mission. But this also means that Paul and we must be convinced of our commission. Well, we have to be convinced the Lord Jesus has called us to go and to speak of Him. If we're to endure such things. And this is what we find in Acts chapter 21, beginning there in verse 37 and stretching through to chapter 22, verse 21. Here we read of Paul's defense before the angry and murderous crowd in Jerusalem. What we learn from this defense is that Paul not only shares their zealous love for the Lord and His law, but that he has been confronted, converted, and commissioned by the risen Messiah, the reigning Lord Jesus. He has been dramatically changed from a persecutor to a preacher. So let's work through Paul's defense piece by piece, where we see that he is convinced of his commission. Follow along now as I read just verses 37 to 39 of Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, verse 37 to 39. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. In these verses, we read of Paul clarifying his identity to the Roman tribune. He had mistaken Paul for an Egyptian who had previously led a revolt in Jerusalem. And again, there's actually historical evidence that this revolt took place. Uh, there was a real man who had done real damage in Jerusalem. He, he actually came into Jerusalem and he promised that if they followed him, the walls around the city would come tumbling down. Uh, needless to say, at that point in time, the walls did not fall down. But that Egyptian did cause much trouble. So with, with all of this commotion that's been caused, the tribune likely thinks that Paul is that Egyptian. That he's come back to town to try and continue his assassination attempts. 
It was probably easy to mistake Paul, who was given a very severe beating up to this point, and the confusion that's been caused by the crowd. But whatever the case may be, we see here that Paul, he clarifies his identity. He's not Egyptian at all. He's a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia. And when he says that he's from no obscure city, uh, what he means is that he's from an important city, which Tarsus actually was in the ancient Roman world. In verse 39, I think we really get the first line of evidence that Paul is convinced of his commission as he asks to speak to the crowd who had just been beating him. I mean, imagine that. Here it is, you've just been wailed upon by this crowd, and you think, actually, I have something I want to say to them. And he is bold to do it. Is this not a challenge to us? Ought not we to speak of God's grace to those who misunderstand and mistreat us? Ought we not to speak even when there is hostility? Only someone who is convinced of their calling could have such boldness. Have you considered that God may have called you to faith in Jesus Christ to speak about Jesus and to speak for Jesus, even in such an environment? Well, let's look at what Paul says. Find there in verse 40. Begin reading in Acts chapter 21, verse 40. We'll read to verse 5 of chapter 22. Follow along there. Verse 40. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Well, here is where Paul begins his defense, his apologia. This is actually the first in a series of defense speeches that Paul is going to give in the remainder of the book of Acts. Paul, he is always gracious in his defense. Notice how he begins there in verse 21. He kindly refers to them as brothers and fathers. He doesn't call them scum. He identifies with them and says, I'm, I'm, I'm one of you and I, I love you. He's charitable toward them. And in fact, this phrase, brothers and fathers, this is the way that Stephen began his speech back earlier in the book of Acts. Paul is mirroring the message of the man that he saw put to death years before. Paul, he strikes a conciliatory tone there at the end of verse 3 as well. When he grants, do you see this? He grants that his accusers are zealous for God. In this, I think we can see that Paul loves those whom he is speaking to. And I think that this teaches us a lesson as well. If we, in the midst of hostility, are misunderstood and perhaps maligned, we have to love those whom we are speaking to and speak lovingly to them as well. Paul wanted to see them brought to know Jesus. When you are misunderstood and accused, begin with kindness and charity like Paul. We should also note, too, that Paul, he actually tries to persuade his hearers that he is, shall we say, kosher. Uh, he's, a, he's a good Jew. Do you see this? He grew up in Jerusalem. He's educated at the feet of the one of the most prestigious teachers of the day. And in these verses, what Paul is doing, he's laying out his Jewish 
credentials. And alongside that, he announces that he actually had conflict with the way. It's a reference to the Christians. He pursued them. He persecuted them. He put them in chains and wanted to see them punished. If the crowd wanted, they could verify all of this with the high priest and the whole council of elders. Paul is a certifiable and conscientious Jew. Before his confrontation by the risen Messiah, he was just as zealous as they are. And actually, he remains just as zealous as they are today. Yet he has new light shown to him by the Messiah. Paul, he is identifying with his accusers, and yet he's about to announce a major shift that has taken place in his life when he's confronted by the risen Christ. Read Acts chapter 22, verses 6 to 11 now. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. We've actually heard this story before in the book of Acts. We heard it back in Acts chapter 9. But I think that part of the reason that Luke includes uh, Paul's conversion story once again here at this point is because he wants us to understand that Paul, or Saul, is a divinely commissioned spokesman for God. Uh, this episode is actually reminiscent of uh, Old Testament prophetic encounters with Yahweh. Uh, think of Isaiah when he saw the very throne room of God. Remember we sang holy, holy, holy earlier in the service. Uh, Paul saw the angels, uh, not Paul, sorry, Isaiah saw the angels uh, crying that out, that dramatic vision. Uh, and then there's also Ezekiel who had a similar experience, encounter with God. He said this actually of his commission. Listen to these words and remember Paul's speaking about the light. That's what we read in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord Yahweh. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. That's what happened to Ezekiel. And Paul is saying, that's actually what happened to me too. I had a similar experience to that of Ezekiel. Paul is claiming that his confrontation by the Christ was like that of an Old Testament prophet who was personally and divinely commissioned to speak for God. But there's more. In these verses, Paul is not so subtly claiming that the Lord Jesus is God. After all, it's God who confronts and visits his prophets and who confronted and visited Paul. It was Jesus. The Lord Jesus specifically called Paul. And he has work for him to do. Jesus is God. He is the one who confronts men and commissions them to be his apostles and prophets. Notice that word appointment there in verse 10. That has special significance. Paul is commissioned to speak directly for the Lord Jesus. And I think the same is true for you. If you're a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you probably 
did not have the same conversion experience as the Apostle Paul. You probably did not have a sudden flash of light get knocked to the ground, and you probably were not visited directly, personally, physically, visibly by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And nevertheless, if Jesus has called you to faith in himself, he has called you to be a disciple who goes and makes more disciples. Jesus has commissioned us to speak for him. We've been appointed not only to salvation, but to be ambassadors for Christ. And look at the way Paul continues his conversion story there in verses 12 to 16. Read those verses. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And why now do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul, as you see here in the text, he had to be led to meet Ananias. And observe how Paul characterizes Ananias. Ananias, in another sense, is kosher too. He is a good Jew. You see, he's well-known and well-spoken of. Still, he calls Saul, or Paul, brother. Not only that, but the, the language that Ananias uses is actually thoroughly Jewish. Do you see that phrase there? The God of our fathers. That, that's a reference to the God who made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's, that's Old Testament language. Ananias reveals that the God of the Jews is the God who appointed Paul to know his will. In other words, he has appointed Paul to be the one who, who comes to share about God's Messiah, to meet and greet God's Messiah, and to be sent by God's Messiah. It's the same God who appointed Paul to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth. So this is a, a very Jewish way of speaking. Even that term, the righteous one, is another name for the Messiah in the Old Testament. Uh, so, for example, the, the messianic servant of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, is called the righteous one. Listen to these words from Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. See, according to Ananias, Paul was appointed to know and see and bear witness to the Messiah. And Paul is trying to explain to his audience. Remember, he's got this angry mob before him. He's trying to explain through his testimony that this Jesus who confronted me also commissioned me. It's not merely acceptable for Jews to be followers of, the Jesus, of, the, of Jesus the Messiah. It's actually the most Jewish thing that you can do. Ananias and Paul are now prime examples of that. And before Paul gets on with the work, notice here what Ananias does in his conversion testimony. Ananias instructs him to get into the water. Did you notice what he said there in verse 16? He said, Paul, what are you waiting for? It is time for you to show your faith in the Messiah, in the Messiah that you've been waiting for as a Jew. Call upon his name in faith and you will be saved. Here, Ananias, he calls for Paul to publicly identify with the Messiah by being baptized. You see, in baptism, Paul visibly identifies with the work of Jesus, the, the righteous one, by symbolically being buried 
and symbolically raised from the grave. Paul would visibly show that he trusts in the Messiah. But there's still yet another symbolic element that we see here in baptism, isn't there? And that is that baptism also pictures the washing or the cleansing of sin. Ananias said to Paul, what are you waiting for? Friend, I say to you, what are you waiting for? Like Paul, come to Jesus. Believe that he is God's righteous one. That God sent to save unrighteous people like you and me, sinners. Turn from your sin and believe that Jesus went up onto the cross to bear the punishment that was due to your sin. Turn from your sin and believe that Jesus went down into the grave, dying the death that your sins deserve. Turn from your sin and believe that three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, proving that all who turn from their sin and trust in him will have eternal life. Friend, get in that pool and show your faith in the Son of God. Show that you believe that God washes away all of your sin. That that's precisely what Jesus' blood does. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may we, as vile as he, wash all our sins away. Friend, what are you waiting for? Come to the Lord Jesus and have your sins washed away. Call upon his name to rescue you from eternal death and cleanse you of all of your sins. Friend, God promises us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will experience conversion like the Apostle Paul. Salvation like the Apostle Paul. Friend, what are you waiting for? Come to Jesus today. And if you know, want to know more about what that means to come to the Lord Jesus, to give your life to him and serve him and be a messenger of his grace, Find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more glorious or more important than you can think about than what it means to be converted by Christ and to come to him in faith. Well, uh, in, in verses 17 to 22, Paul tells us that he received a commission. This has been hinted at with that language of appointment there in verse 10 and verse 14, but now it becomes explicit. Take a look at verses 17 to 22. Paul says... When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Well, as you can see there in verse 22, the Jews got very angry at this point. After all, here, here's Paul. He's recounting a vision of Jesus, the risen Messiah, in the temple. Note that, it's in the temple. And again, this experience is akin to Isaiah's vision of Yahweh, seated upon the throne, and the train of his temple filling 
the temple with glory. The train of his robe filling the temple with glory. Just as Isaiah was commissioned through a vision, so is Paul we see here. But the Jews are not at all excited about Paul's commission. Remember, the Jewish religious leaders had killed Jesus roughly 25 years before. And now through Paul's testimony, they hear that this Jesus, the one that they can't seem to get rid of, this Jesus is telling Paul that the Jews are going to reject Paul. And that he, Paul, has been commissioned to take the message of God's Messiah to the Gentiles. Now, one of the things that I find humorous about this section is that Paul argues with Jesus. I mean, did you notice that? You see that verse 19? Paul says, Lord, no, I've got credibility with them. Right? They, they know that I've been against the way. They know that I persecuted Christians. I was there at Stephen's death. I'm a great spokesman for you to them. And Jesus says, no, go. Um, Paul, his argument with Jesus is a bit like Peter's arguing uh, with the Lord when he had the vision of the sheep being let down from heaven in Acts chapter 10. We often uh, think we know what, what's best. The Lord always knows what's best. Jesus has a better plan. And Jesus' plan was for Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to go to the Gentiles. And this is what angers the Jews. Notice in verse 22 that they were willing to listen to Paul up to that word, Gentiles. They should not have been angry. They should have been at, in awe of what God had accomplished in Jesus Christ. And they should have rejoiced that God's Old Testament purposes and promises were coming true. If they had remembered their Old Testaments better, then they would have known that it was always God's plan to make His salvation known to the ends of the earth. Remember, he told Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to the families, the nations of the earth. Genesis 12, 3. In Genesis 49, 10, we're told that a ruler from the tribe of Judah will receive the obedience of the peoples of the earth. In Psalm 67, 5, Isaiah would pray and sing. Israel would pray and sing. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. A reference to the peoples is a reference to the Gentile peoples. In Psalm 72, verse 17, this prayer rings out. May people be blessed in Him. All nations call Him blessed. In Psalm 96, 3, declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. The Gentiles were always to be told of God's glory and salvation. Of the Messiah. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, we're told this. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The light bulb should have been going off among Paul's Jewish hearers. Oh, the good news is going to the Gentiles. This must be the Messiah. But it wasn't. All of God's promises were being fulfilled, and Paul's mission is precisely in line with God's purposes disclosed in the Old Testament. They should have rejoiced, but they reviled Paul instead. And they rejected him. And the cries of away with him were renewed. They even wanted him to die. This scene is all sadly reminiscent of Jesus' rejection and the cries for him to be crucified. The Messiah's messengers will often walk the Messiah's path. Beloved, though we have not been given an apostolic commission like Paul, we have been commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus to make his good news known. Be convinced that your conversion means you've been commissioned to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Like Paul, share your testimony. Tell others what you were like, how you were introduced to Jesus, and why you love him. 
because he loved you and gave his life for you. Be bold like Paul at the beginning of this. Ask, may I say something to you? What if you just ask that to, to your friend? Maybe your friend you're in a conversation with. May, may I just ask, say something to you? And then tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe they won't revile you. Maybe they won't reject Jesus. Maybe they will rejoice to hear that their sins can be cleansed and washed away. Maybe risk rejection for the sake of their rejoicing. For the sake of Jesus' mission. Paul, we've seen that he must be all things to all men. He must be willing to endure slander and scorn for the sake of the Savior. He must be convinced of his commission. And finally, he must be certain of his citizenship. This is our fourth and final point. Be certain of your citizenship. Follow along as I read verses 22 to 29 of Acts 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks and saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. We understand what's happening in these verses, right? The, the crowd is incensed. They, they want Paul taken away and put to death. That's their cry. It's a sad replay, as I've said, of what we've seen with Jesus. Understandably, the, the tribune wants to get to the bottom of this commotion in his city. And so the tribune orders that his subordinates beat Paul until he explains why the crowd is so riled up. Paul is about to face the same Roman whips that the Lord Jesus faced. But Paul, he wisely interrupts the question. As there he is, he's stretched out to receive his lashing, waiting up till the very last moment, it seems. And he asks that question, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Well, Paul, like a good lawyer, he knows the answer to the question he's asking. You can almost hear the whips drop to the floor at the moment that Paul announces his citizenship. Sometimes it is right to appeal to your rights as a citizen. Sometimes it is right to check the powers of the state, to call them to account, and to goad them into righteousness. But here's the big idea that I want you to get from these verses. Paul's citizenship in heaven is shaping his use of his citizenship on earth. Paul's citizenship in heaven is shaping his use of his citizenship on earth. You see, we've already been told in the book of Acts that Paul wants to go on to Rome. He wants to preach the gospel there. Paul wants to advance the kingdom of heaven. That is his first priority and primary goal. And it should be our first priority and primary goal too. Paul is not so much interested in advancing Rome's kingdom as he is advancing Jesus' kingdom. He is more interested in advancing Jesus' kingdom. Our allegiance 
is first to our citizenship in heaven. Our allegiance is first to King Jesus. And we ought to use our citizenship on earth, in the nations of the earth, to further the kingdom of heaven. Now that Paul is in Roman custody, he can use the protections of his citizenship to have the Roman government carry him to Rome. It's brilliant. From this point forward, Paul is going to travel to Rome, not only on Rome's dime, but under Rome's protection. And as we conclude, we should learn from Paul, right? We, we should make use of our citizenship and our protections here on earth to advance the kingdom of heaven. Don't endure a beating that you don't have to take. Encourage more people to become citizens of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus' kingdom along the way. Every one of us here today has the freedom to speak of Christ. And we should give thanks to God for that. Cherish that. And not, uh, not, not take that for granted. The time and the place that we live in is a gift of God. And we should not store that gift away, but we should spend it making Christ known. We may be misunderstood, we may be mocked, or we may be maligned. But that was the path of our Savior. He endured that for us. The Messiah's messengers will often walk the path that the Messiah walked. And as we live, waiting for our citizenship in heaven to become a full reality, let us be willing to be all things to all men. That we might save some. Let us be willing to suffer slander and scorn for the sake of the Savior and the advancement of His name. Suffering, slander, and scorn all have an end. But the kingdom of heaven has no end. As the old hymn declares, earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot heal. Let us be convinced that our conversion means that Christ has commissioned us to go and make Christ known. And let us be certain of our citizenship in heaven and that that citizenship cannot be lost. He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. We will make it home. So let us be so heavenly minded that we are of some earthly good to those around us by telling them about Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the example that we have in the Apostle Paul. Uh, how he was courageous to speak of Christ, to speak the truth in love. How he was even flexible among his uh, brothers in Christ to help bring about peace in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, we give you thanks uh, that even in the face of great danger, he wished to declare the Lord Jesus. Father, we ask for more of Paul's courage. We ask that you remind us of just how great the grace of the Lord Jesus is toward us. That he has rescued sinners like us. And out of an overflowing love and thanks for the greatness of the Lord Jesus, help us to proclaim Christ and make him known. Father, we pray and ask that you would help us to use our citizenship here on earth uh, in a way that's informed by our citizenship in Christ's kingdom. And help us to love the kingdom of heaven above all other kingdoms on this earth. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.